When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Gargi, and today I have with me Professor Erin James. Uh, Professor James teaches world literatures in English, critical theory, and literatures of climate crisis at the University of Idaho in the U.S. She is here to talk about her monograph, Narrative in the Anthropocene, published in April this year with Ohio University Press. Hello, Professor James. How are you today? Great. How are you? Thank you. Uh, As always, I would like to start at the beginning. Uh, What is the genesis of this book? How How did you come to write this book? Yeah, in many ways, this is an extension of, I'm kind of a one trick pony. I ask the same questions a lot. And so in my previous work, I was thinking about Um, how to read the environment in the form of narratives, right? So not just in their content, but in the structures by which writers put narratives together and readers interpret them. And I was coming at that um, specifically from the perspective of post-colonial literatures, right? So Caribbean and African literatures. And that was really like a graduate school project inspired by some dissonance that I was feeling between the eco-critical theory that I was reading at the time that was really focused on the content of a text, right? Particularly American nonfiction writing, nature writing, um, and the text that I was reading, which didn't have people communing with nature in the woods or on top of mountains, right? It had the brutalities of the plantation system and its aftermath. And so I thought, well, how can we turn to form to read environment? Is there any information that we can find there? So this new book that's come out is really a kind of extension of that. It's asking the same question is how can we think about the form of narratives as holding environmental insight? And part of it is um, coming from, um, let's say, uh, confusion, again, about how I see environmental humanities and narrative scholars talking about environment and narrative, right? There seems to be in my mind, kind of two very clear camps. Um, Some people argue that narrative has partly caused the environmental crisis. And if we change the story, we can mitigate or 
help to alleviate the environmental crisis, right? So we just need to tell different stories. So narrative is part of the solution. And then another camp suggests that narrative is actually irredeemable in this moment, right? It's too anthropocentric, it's it's too it's too human focused and that we need to kind of turn away from it and embrace other forms of representation and communication. And then also a, a kind of a second conversation that I'm tracking of a growing critical consensus amongst environmental humanities scholars that Anthropocene narratives or climate change fiction, again, is about like explicit representation of the environment in crisis, right? Um, so kind of an echo of that early eco-critical conversation of reading explicit representations of environmental communion um, um, in narratives. And I'm, again, thinking about like, well, what about a text that doesn't explicitly represent the climate crisis, but still has something to say, right, about intentionally or not about the climate crisis? So it's a kind of big soup of questions that have been swirling around, right, which which produced this book. Um, and it um, is kind of keeping its kind of lines of inquiry and, 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 and critical roots in post-colonial theory and post-colonial literature, but kind of branching out a little bit more to think more broadly about um, both contemporary literature and then kind of much older texts as well. Okay. And um, you have also published uh, with this book, uh, Not Far Away, another book uh, on the related theme of environment and narrative, new directions in eco-narratology. Is this, again, based uh, taking from the concepts in this book, or that is a very different project that happened to be published at the same time? Yeah. So that word eco-narratology is um, something that I I came up with in my first book, which is called The Story World Accord. And it was my way of trying to um, identify a mode of reading that could look for environmental insight in the form of a text, right? Um, in addition to the content. Um, so I think the subtitle of that book, I should know it. <laughs> I think it's Eco-Narratology and Postcolonial Narratives is the subtitle of that first book. Um, I work really closely with this great scholar named Eric Morell. And we got to talking and we organized a few conference panels together um, on this issue of form and environment. And we thought, what if we put out a CFP, right? And, and I'll call for papers and see if people respond. Um, and we got like a deluge of responses from folks um, about reading the environment of form. And so that was the environment and narrative, new directions in eco-narratology book, right, is really asking people to think with us about what we could do with this concept, right, or this mode of reading. The next book, again, the narrative in the Anthropocene is a kind of extension of that project, but it's thinking even more ambitiously, I think, about the critical concepts or the lexicon that we're missing in order to talk in a robust or sophisticated way about the form of text, right? And, and how we might read the environment and form. So in this new book, I'm kind of taking a step further and not only saying we could use narrative theory and some of the insights from narratology to read implicit representations of the environment in text. I'm actually proposing new terms in this um, latest book, right? To say like, we need to actually update our model of narrative theory um, to um, to change with our changing environment, right? It only makes sense to me that as the environment is is changing in this moment of crisis, that the the um, words that we use to talk about it would change as well. And so you can see them all in a kind of through line together, right? As as pushing on the same project of reading the form of a text um, for environmental insight. 
And, and that leads me to the lexicon that I want to talk to you about. Um, Anthropocene is, is a key word here. Um, for the sake of our audience, can you tell us what it is and how is it relevant when we talk about narratives? Yeah, great. Um, it's such a baggy and complicated word. Right? Um, so uh, the Anthropocene um, at its, I think, kind of most simple is a geological term, right? And it's the term that geologists use to refer to what comes after the Holocene, right? And it's inspired by a legible mark in the geologic strata in which humans are registering their presence on the, on the earth, right? Um, it's like you can read it in the rocks. I'm really inspired by that because I understand the Anthropocene at some level is about humans literally writing the world, right? They are leaving their mark upon the world. I understand narrative as a form of humans writing and inhabiting imaginary worlds, right? Um, and so I see a kind of basic connection between Anthropocene and narrative as this process of humans writing worlds. There's a lot of differences there, right? In the former, we're talking about the actual real world. In the latter, we're talking about imaginary worlds, right? But I want to kind of mind that difference. Although as a post-colonial scholar, I'm also well aware that the Anthropocene is a wickedly problematic concept, right? Because it has the tendency to conflate all humans into one category, right? When we know that the humans that are leaving their mark upon the world are a very specific subset of more affluent humans who are living a lifestyle that is more environmentally taxing and damaging than many, many other humans um, around the planet. And so part of the project is to both take this concept of the Anthropocene and pull what's useful out of it, but then also try to complicate it, particularly as we work with it in terms of how it's related to narrative, right? To push on some of these assumptions that are are baked into it about equality of humans, right? The human as the species or humans working collectively as a species agent, right? Or at the level of, of species, which I think um, can be pretty damaging kind of um, stories that, that we tell about our current moment. Yeah. And, and if you allow me to talk about um, the narrative here, you have a very precise I don't know if, if the precise is the right word, but you have a, a specific definition for narrative that you mentioned several times in the book. And uh, I'm quoting here, it, uh, a narrative is somebody telling someone else on some occasion and for some purpose purposes that something happened for us. Uh, why was there this a need to propose this definition? Yeah, this is great. So I want to give um, credit to two scholars here in my definition of narrative, because my definition is a real pastiche of, of work that has come before me. And one of the projects that I'm doing in this book is to bring together various conversations within narrative theory to think about how we can um, talk about the environment. So James Phelan comes up with the really cute and uh, you know, snappy language of narrative is somebody telling someone else um, on some occasion and for some purpose that something happened, right? And that's a very, um, he comes up with this definition in the 1990s. It's a very rhetorically minded definition of narrative, which is positioning narrative as a persuasive tool, right? We tell each other stories for some reason to communicate, you know, some idea and persuade people of that idea. 
The other scholar that I am really inspired by is David Herman, who is a cognitive narratologist. And so is thinking about what actually happens in your brain when you interpret narrative and, and what needs to happen in your brain when you interpret narrative. And he talks about the importance of worlds and, and story worlds to narrative. You know, um, uh, he makes a very strong case that for a narrative, you not only need something to happen and someone to tell a story, but you also need some sort of surrounding context in which characters function, right? And so the definition that I propose is really bringing Phelan's and Herman's understandings of narrative together, which I'm going to try to get myself right here, which is somebody telling someone else on some occasion and for some purpose that something happened in some world, right? Um, So I'm bringing these two together. One of the claims of the book is that we can understand narrative productively as world building for some purpose, right? Is that when we tell each other stories or when we read stories or listen to stories or watch stories, we're really building alternate worlds, but those we're doing that for some reason, right? Whether it's to persuade people of an idea or to flex the kind of cognitive and emotional muscles that would make it easier to live in that world, right? So we can kind of practice living in that world without, you know, kind of doing it in real life. So I want to call attention to to that aspect of narrative, which I think makes a really kind of nice link to environmental humanities discussions, right? About the link between stories and the world. And and in the beginning of the book, you state that an understanding of the narrative implies an understanding of the Anthropocene. Can you unpack this for us a little? Yeah. I mean, it comes back to this really kind of simple link as Anthropocene and narrative as two concepts that kind of involve humans writing worlds, right? Um, so again, you know, the, the Anthropocene in its geologic sense is humans making their mark upon the world and then inhabiting that world, right? Creating a world and then inhabiting it. And I understand narrative. If we think about narrative as world building for some purpose or somebody telling someone else on some occasion that something happened, um, in some world, um, you know, this also involves the process of us, um, you know, um, conceiving of a world, inhabiting that world emotionally and imaginatively while we are understanding the narrative. Um, and so I want to you know, think about these two things together. And it, part of it is reacting to this argument that narrative is irredeemable in this moment or something that we should avoid in this moment, right? I agree that narratives can be very damaging, right? If we continually tell each other the wrong stories or kind of damaging stories about the world that we live in or stories that um, allow us to practice living destructively in a world, right? Or taking certain things for granted. It's much easier for us to do that in real life. But I also want to suggest that if we want to get to grips with the, the roots of the climate crisis and the mechanisms by which it is happening, it makes a lot of sense for us to turn to narrative, right? As this tool for world building that we are continually practicing in our in our lives as we interact with each other, as we think, right? As we engage in, in kind of fictional stories. And so it's like, what if we think about stories as not only reflections of the world, right? But this may be even like offline process by which we're practicing this world building behavior that that then is having a kind of really destructive um, 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 
um, results in, in kind of real life, right? As, as we as we world build literally um, in this moment. Yep. And um, and this is how um, I'm imagining here that this is this is what you mean by an Anthropocene narrative theory. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. 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 So the and, Anthropocene. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go on. He's gone. Yeah, an Anthropocene narrative theory. So part of that too is like, um, you know, I think it's important to appreciate that a lot of the narratological terms that we use were based upon. I mean, they were generated in the latter half, mid mid to latter half of the 20th century, right? And they're based upon a very specific set of texts, right? So typically 18th, 19th century novels written by middle-class straight white men, right? And so they, there are lots of kind of claims about the universality of some of these organizations of time or types of narrators, right? Um, but we're, we're making those claims of universality on this very small group of texts. There have been there has been such important work within narrative theory over the last twenty or thirty years, which is opening up narratological lexicon to texts written by women, right, in feminist narratology, or texts written by people of color, right, um, and and um, formerly colonized communities in post-colonial narratology. And I want to make a case that, like, if we look at a lot of contemporary literature in particular, but you know, even older literature too, and we're sensitive to ideas about environment. We just need new tools. We need new terms to talk about some of this stuff because it's not functioning in the same way that it did in these texts upon which the narratological lexicon is based, right? And so I want to be a bit bold and adventurous, a bit speculative, right? Like what if we had this new term for time? How would it help us read some organizations of time that maybe seem a little bit confusing or seem to kind of not fit very well within a narratological model that was based upon Proust, right? So that Anthropocene narrative theory, part of it is literally like what concepts and words do we need to be able to talk about representations of the Anthropocene in narratives, right? And how would these new words help us do that? But then also it's more ambitious. It's thinking about how can narrative help us understand the Anthropocene via this commonality of world building, right? And how might we understand this imaginative or, you know, um, emotional inhabitation of alternate worlds as a kind of dry run, right? Dress rehearsal for the type of world building that we're doing in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, you, uh, you argue that uh, the narrative is specifically human, even though we can look for um, events and representations in the non-human world, but narration is something very human. Um, can you tell me why you came to this conclusion? Yeah. This, so this is also like coming from years of, um, you know, having environmental humanities conversations at conferences and, and reading ecocritical and environmental humanities scholarships. And I see this word narrative pop up again and again and again, right? Just like, it's like a favorite word of a lot of environmental humanities scholars with good reason. But in many of the cases, um, I'm, I don't quite understand how people are using this word, right? I don't know if you know this film, um, The Princess Bride. Do you know this movie, The Princess Bride? So this is like famous film from the 80s. Um, and there's this character named 
Inigo Montoya in the movie who keeps saying to people like, you keep using this word and I don't think it means what you think it means, right? And I feel like I'm constantly like the Inigo Montoya of environmental humanities scholarship. Like, what do you mean when you when you use that word? And I, I'm not asking that to be pedantic or, or condescending. Like I'm really coming from a, a space of curiosity. Like, how are you understanding this word? Because it is not consistent with how I understand it from this other conversation that I'm steeped in, which is narratology or, or, or narrative theory. And so one of the things that I do in the first chapter of the book is like take this pretty robust tour through narrative theory and run through the evolution of definitions of narrative over, over time, going way back to like Todorov, right? Um, and, and coming up through the most recent definitions. And I really understand narrative definitions to be a kind of palimpsest of new things that people are continually adding to it as we better understand how narrative functions and what it does, right? So, you know, we can go back to someone like Gerard Jeanette, who's writing in the 1970s, who defines narrative as the representation of a sequence of events, right? So it's real emphasis on, on time and things happening. And then we get all the way to kind of David Herman in the 2010s, who says, you know, narrative has four basic elements. It has, you know, there's a someone telling a, something in some context. It has something happening, right? Event sequencing. It has a world that those events are happening in. And then it has a sense of, of what it's like or what Herman calls qualia, right? Or like sensory information about what it's like. If you take Jeanette's definition, tree rings and ice cores and some material expressions fit that definition, right? Tree rings are a literal representation of a sequence of events or ice cores, representation of a sequence of events. But if you take Herman's definition, it doesn't quite fit, right? There's there's not a narrator um, who's narrating to a specific narrative. There's not a sense of, of qualia or what it's like, right? There's um, not any of the more... Um, uh, the other things that we associate with narrative, like focalization, right? Anachrony, right? Or, or um, disturbances in time, right? Um, I don't know, free and direct discourse, right? All of these other things that we associate with narrative. And so I want to be more precise, but when we talk about material narrative in particular, or the narrative um, agency of material, I want to nail down what definition of narrative we're working with and how that concept maybe becomes tricky if we move from one definition to another. So one of the things that I want to do in the book is encourage environmental humanities scholars to not see narrative as like a, a switch, like you either, it is a narrative or it is not, but to start working along a continuum of narrativity, right? So we might say that some non-human, right, expressions uh, or representations have a degree of narrativity in that they perhaps represent sequences of events, right? But the narrativity is not as robust or rich as it would be in some of the narratives that, um, some of the other narratives that we might find. So that's kind of partly inspiration for that. I, I'm anticipating, to be quite honest, that this is going to be one of the more controversial um, claims that I make in the book, right? About the, the anthropogenic nature of narrative, Part of it is coming from research that I've done in comparative cognition, right? And thinking about how different species think. Um, um, I, I really think that we do a disservice of collapsing a whole bunch of different 
representations or expressions into this category of narrative, right? It, it ironically, I think, allows us to assume um, on some level that other species or objects or material thinks and expresses in the same way that we do, right? And I, I'm not... I'm not sure that that helps us, right, um, to appreciate these other expressive capacities of non-human agents and material, and so that's that's part of the that's the Enigma Montoya kind of <laughs> inspiration for that for that line of inquiry in the book. Um, okay, and I wanted to come back to something you mentioned about about time, and you uh, when you talk about Jeanette and his discussion of narrative time. Uh, and uh, if I've understood this correctly, you are saying that this is insufficient in, in, in the Anthropocene. Um, why is it so? Why is it insufficient? Yeah. So um, just back to your first question of like, how did this book come about, right? In, in some really basic way, the various chapters in this book were really simple thought experiments. And so the chapters are time, space, I don't even, I can't even remember. Isn't this awful material narration, right? <laughs> um, I've got it sitting in front of me, so I should just look. <laughs> but I was thinking about like, okay, what if I take um, understandings of these things that we associate with the Anthropocene and then try to spin them out in a narrative? Like what would they look like in a narrative? So I was thinking about time, right? I was thinking about evolutionary time or geologic time. Narrative, and lots of people have written about this, right? Narrative is very, very good at communicating or representing human timescales, right? Or the timescale of individual experience. It is really not nimble at representing millions and millions and millions of years, right? Um, because it's you know, somebody telling someone else that something happened on some occasion, right? And it's it's hard to tell a story about millions of years without it being incredibly long or actually, to be honest, like pretty boring, right? And so I was thinking, okay, like, well, what, what, how do I, if I get into the narratological model and I get, I get like really detailed with it, like where, what are the tools that would help us, right? Articulate or represent geologic time in a narrative and, and which ones are not all that helpful, and I find myself in some surprising places. So in that chapter, I, I kind of go through Jeanette's model, which is still the dominant model of time um, in narratological discourse. And I start thinking about order, duration, frequency, right? Where are the where are the moments of dissonance, right, with our more contemporary understandings of environmental time, right, geologic time, and where are some potential? And I end up oddly, I didn't expect this, but I end up thinking about frequency a lot, right? And Jeanette's concept of the iterative and how the iterative might help us understand a time scale that stretches far beyond the time frame of individual human experience. And in that chapter, I end up looking at Afrofuturist texts or indigenous speculative fiction, right? And seeing how writers like River Solomon or Sherry Dimmeline are actually doing something like this in their text, but it's not very easy for us to talk about because these timelines that are happening in these narratives like don't necessarily fit Jeanette's model all that well, which makes sense, right? His model is based on Proust, right? It's not based on Afrofuturism or indigenous speculative fiction. And so my kind of happy goal in this is to both try out new terms, but also like encourage a discussion in which we're not afraid to, to pitch new terms, right? And see if any of them stick and see if any of them help us talk about these, these new understandings of time that are really essential for 
grappling with the environmental crisis. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And, uh, and your uh, new concept tool for this problem is the effect event, if, if I'm not wrong. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. So there's two in that chapter. Yeah. There's the, there's the uh, something that, you know, a concept that works with the iterative and the effect event is me thinking about really Rob Nixon's work on slow violence, right? Um, and the this is a kind of another concept of time that's become really important to our understanding of environmental crisis, which is um, violence that is not catastrophic in the moment. You know, we're, we're used, as Nixon argues, like we're really good at like thinking about a punch or a bomb or something that is just like, you know, it happens and we can see it happening and it like is very obvious. We're not particularly good, especially in narrative, of addressing a kind of steady drip, drip accumulation of pollution or toxicity that is almost impossible, if not impossible, to see in the moment, but becomes legible only in its accumulation on and transformation of, of bodies or objects. And so I'm trying to think about that. And I'm, you know, in that discussion, I'm realizing just how fundamentally challenging that concept of slow violence is to even the most basic definition of narrative, you know, understanding narrative as a sequence of events or someone telling someone else that something happened relies upon us being able to see events happening and articulate them as happening in the moment. But what about an event that is illegible to characters or maybe even illegible to the narrator that's telling the story, right? But only becomes clear through its accumulated and transformative effects upon bodies and objects. And so I want to create this like new, much more capacious understanding of event that doesn't need to be legible in the moment, right? But can be legible kind of in its in its aftermath. So that's where that term of the effect event um, came through. And again, I'm really responding to, to Nixon so smartly writes about um about this in slow violence, but he says, you know, like he does the typical environmental humanities move, which is like, we need new narratives and new narrative forms to talk about this. Um, but doesn't understandably, cause he's got other things to talk about, right? He doesn't quite like then take the next step and be like, well, what, what does that exactly look like? Right. Or, or, or how might we need to kind of shift the narrative model to accommodate this? And so I'm trying to pick up that baton and run with it and, and think seriously about, okay, like if we need new narratives, like A, how do we talk about them? And B, like actually do they already exist, but we just are struggling to talk about them because we don't have the terminology yet to talk about it. Uh, and did you mention that there are two things that you are uh, questioning uh, Jeanette's uh, temporality with? 
or is it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's um, the, in that time chapter, there's kind of two discussions. So the first discussion is this geologic time, right? Where I talk about this, the term I come up with is the pseudo iterative, right? Or the pseudo singular, sorry, which is a riff on Jeanette's pseudo iterative, which is a way of talking about an event that occurs within, uh, within a text that seems to be singular in the text, but we as readers have to be able to um, link it to something that we know happened in the real world outside of the text for it to make sense. And thereby, by doing that, we like extend the timeline of the text way beyond the parameters of the individual experience or the experiences of the individuals in the story. So the two examples I'm using there are Sherry, Sherry Dimaline's young adult novel, The Marrow Thieves, which I don't know if, do you know The Marrow Thieves? It's a really great, um, it's like, would satisfy, you know, very standard definitions of climate change fiction and that it's about explicit representations of climate change, but it's set in a future um, kind of um, Southern Ontario um, in Canada. And uh, our narrator is a young Métis boy named Frenchie who is running from what he calls the recruiters, right? Um, In this world, white uh, Canadians have lost the ability to dream. And the only way that they can gain it back is to um, you know, ingest a drug that is derived from the bone marrow of Indigenous people, right? And so the recruiters are kind of combing the woods to round up Indigenous people, put them in schools, right? Um, and kind of harvest them. There's really not much mention at all of the Canadian residential school system and the history of that in this novel. But of course, to understand this, you have to have some sort of context of the residential school system and see the recruiters and the Marrow schools as a kind of echo of that, right? And so my argument is that this event that seems singular, the recruiters and the school in the Marrow Thieves, you must connect it as a reader to this historical event that then extends the timeline of the text way, way back, right? Hundreds of years. And that, for me, is a kind of useful model of thinking, even though Dimaline's novel is not really encouraging us to think along geologic time, right? But it's a useful mechanism for how we might connect an event of a text to something that happens outside of that narrative, right? And therefore open up these new timelines. The other text I look at is River Solomon's An Unkindness of Ghosts, which in a very kind of similar way, it's a a speculative text in which um, uh, the survivors of a destroyed planet Earth are living on a spaceship called the Matilda, um, and they are moving towards, you know, a new planet to terraform. But this spaceship is stratified um, by decks, much like the social stratifications of the antebellum American South, right? So the people of color live below deck. They work the the farms on the spaceship, right? And the white people are much more affluent and they live above. There is no discussion of the antebellum South in this book, but again, for it to make sense, you kind of have to, as a reader, um, understand this context and therefore kick out the timeline quite a bit. So that's kind of my way of thinking through like, well, what sort of organization of time would open up a discussion of these much broader timescales that are so important to the Anthropocene? That's the first half of that chapter. The second half is this slow violence effect event um, discussion. Yeah, and and after time, you uh, I want to take another example, which is which is about the space, and 
if I'm putting it uh, correctly, you're talking about unstable in, in spaces. Um, and that help the readers uh, appreciate um, uh, the, the instability in the real world environments. Um, can you tell us an example of how, how this is done, for example? Yeah, so again, um, this is just like a basic project, right? Where I'm thinking about understandings of space that are dominant in discussions of the Anthropocene. And one of them is that space is incredibly unstable right now, right? Um, space, I don't mean outer space, right? I mean like, you know, the context in which we move, right? Um, and you see this, and one of the ways that I talk about this in the book is like you see this in the reports by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, right? where in their climate modeling, they'll um, talk about what a landscape or area will look like at two degrees higher centigrade, two and a half degrees higher centigrade, one and a half degrees higher centigrade, right? And they're having to um, project all these different understandings of space. And for us to be able to think through what the future might look like, we need to hold all those models in our head at the same time, right? And be able to think about space as being this kind of inherently unstable um, place. There's also like just weird stuff is happening <laughs> to environments, right? You know, we talk about, you hear in the news often like once in a lifetime storm or, you know, once in a millennium drought or unimaginable heat or whatever, right? It's like this, it's like we're really struggling to understand what's happening in our environments because we have this very comfortable set of predictions about how certain spaces and places will behave and they're, they're not behaving in that way. So what do we do with that? So I look through how space is talked about in environmental humanities scholarship and in, in narrative theory. And so I go back and look at like articulations of, of setting and definitions of setting, right? And how we think about that concept, how we think about um, different words that people have used to discuss spatialization, like frames, right? And you know, um, regions and landmarks and paths and stuff like that. And I, I think through like how these are just insufficient for this really strange and unstable space. And so I pitch this new word of despatialization, right? And I talk about this as being spatializing information in a narrative that is strategically inexact, right? Um, and really is kind of presented to us in such a way that it trips us up and makes it really hard for us to get kind of stable understanding of this space. The easiest kind of most familiar representation of this um, that people will probably be familiar with is Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, right? Where, you know, it's like you you can't, mod you literally cannot model and, and map the space that the narrator's moving through because she's using like strange words to talk about it. She's in an underground um, area that she insists on calling a tower, right? Even though she admits it's it's more like a tunnel, she just like she just doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about this space that she's in, and so it becomes very fuzzy, right, and unstable in our minds. Um, so yeah, so I want to I want to kind of introduce this concept, right, and say, okay, well, what would a what would an unstable space look like? How might we talk about it? And then like also, actually, here it is already in a narrative, right? Um, here it is already kind of out there, but because our our understanding of how narrative works is based on these 18th and 19th century novels, usually, right? We have this really anthropo 
centric, like assumption of the stability of space kind of baked in to the model that we're using. Yeah. And um, uh, because your research is at uh, center of this very fecund field right now, uh, what do you hope uh, the readers take from this book? Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, so, you know, it would be nice if people picked up on some of the words that I'm pitching, but, you know, that would be like cherry on the top. I just really hope that it inspires a conversation, right? Um, on both sides of my kind of um, intellectual personality, right? Um, I hope that it continues to inspire scholars of narrative to think about how narrative is changing um, as the world changes but also how we could be more kind of nimble, right? In talking about the structures that are already there in narratives, right? They're already there. We just don't have the kind of vocabulary to talk about them sufficiently. On the other side, I just really hope it, it inspires a conversation amongst environmental humanities scholars of like what narrative is and what it can do, right? On a very, very basic level. What is the definition of this thing? Um, what, it, what can it do? In the coda of the book, I talk about interdisciplinary work that I've been doing um, with my colleagues um, at the University of Idaho and, and now at the University of New Hampshire, um, thinking about how this understanding of narrative might help like actual studies of real world environmental problems, right? I live in a very conservative state um, that has um, environmental issues are very divisive here, right? There are there are hot debates about climate change right? um, and, and what we should do about it. And I, I really want to make a case that if we think more seriously about narrative as world building for some purpose, we also kind of carve out a role for narrative um, in scientific studies of the environment, right? Um, and we begin to think much more broadly about what we as humanities scholars can do in studying the environment. And so that's a kind of another, um, that would be delightful if um, some of the discussions I have in this book, like um, either encourage people to pursue these more interdisciplinary projects or, um, uh, you know, um, um, just put it on the table, right? It's something that, that we could be doing. I agree. That would be delightful. Um, yes. And I hope, and I really hope that happens. Uh, you have published two books this year, and I'm not sure if it's, this is the right time to ask uh, about your future projects. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a bit like a, a, a that's a bit of a panic-inducing question. But <laughs> um, to be honest, yeah, I the future projects immediately right now all have to do with this interdisciplinary work that I'm doing. So um, several years ago, my colleagues. Jen Ladino and Teresa Cohen and I um, started this initiative um, called the Confluence Lab, which is um, an interdisciplinary group that brings together people who are thinking about environmental issues in particularly rural areas in America, right? But, you know, environmental issues in, in places that it's really hard to talk about them, right? Um, and thinking about how the tools of the humanities, particularly those related to storytelling, emotions, communication, and representation can produce different projects that might produce different insight, right? Part of this is coming from the intense stress um, from 
people realizing that like scientific data is just not enough to shift public opinion and public behavior. And like, we need to do something else. Right. Um, so we are working on some wrapping up kind of one, um, pretty substantial grant, um, that right now that's, um, funded by the national science foundation that looks at wildfire, um, and, uh, science literacy in rural communities in Idaho. And we're kind of um, about halfway through another project that is funded by the Mellon Foundation, which is a national philanthropic foundation in America that is producing uh, an atlas of wildfire in the Pacific Northwest that is thinking through new representations of fire that connects wildfire to what we're calling social fires, right? So inequities of race, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. So those are kind of what's taking up a lot of my intellectual um, and emotional space right now. But I'm hoping that there's another monograph in me somewhere, right? Um, I just haven't, I just, am, my brain is taking a bit of a break <laughs> from that kind of thinking. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I'm, I'm into the interdisciplinary stuff at the moment. I, I hope to read more of your works. Uh, thank you, Professor James, for joining me today. It was a lovely conversation. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much.